Hello and welcome back to Apologetics for All. Today we are going to be continuing our biblical series with Warren Jew talking about Genesis 5. Now Genesis 5 is a bit different from the other biblical stories. In the last one we talked about Cain and Abel. However, in this one what we're really trying to do is talk about the importance of genealogies and the importance of kind of the understanding in these genealogies, which I think will be a very interesting discussion. So Warren, how are you and what are your thoughts about genealogies and their role in the Bible? I'm, I'm great, thank you. Uh, to be honest, I'm, I I really don't know. That's why that's why I want to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. it, it. It really does seem to be very boring. And unless you're a very diehard, I guess, Bible fan, then it, it seems quite pointless. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think about it, because I think that there's something very, very interesting about genealogy, or else it won't uh, feature so prominently in the in, in the Bible, especially in such an important place, the fifth part of Genesis. I think that's definitely very interesting. And, and there's this idea of lineage being a very, very important idea. But so, but before we talk more about it, I think it'll become more apparent when we're going through it. I think uh, we can continue reading this. Um, we can read through this and then you can stop me if you see anything very interesting. Yeah. This is the book of Ge the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. I, I apologize, we are using the King James Version as per the request of Warren Drew. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness and after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat son and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 130 years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 700, 807 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enos lived 90 years, and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan. 815 years and begat sons and daughters and all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died and Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel and, and Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalel 800 years and, and 40 years and, and begat sons and daughters and all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died and Mahalalil lived 65 years and begat Jared and Mahalalil lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters and all the days of Mahalalil were 895 years and he died and Jared lived and hundred. 60 and two years and he begat Enoch and Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters and all the days of Jared were 960 and two years and he died and Enoch lived 60 and five years and he begat Methuselah and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters now now I would I think we can stop here because Enoch is a very interesting section which I think owes its own discussion apart from it being a genealogy. However, I think that genealogy is very interesting. And and what exactly do you think of it after my profound reading of it? Uh, what struck me was, was first how, how long people lived inside the genealogies compared to, I, I guess, the realities of the living conditions at that time and even in our time. So 
it, it feels very strange that they would say that, that like human that the first the first humans had got to live i don't know like all, all above 600 years i'm wondering what, what you think about it very interesting idea because you can see here that they actually live short every time because it's 900 for adam 800 for enos seth for 900 then 800 for canaan then 900 then then 70 years and then 900 years and it's 900 800 900 800 and then it goes down to 100 at jared and then after well, actually it's 900 for jared and then and then it goes down and down and down but it's slowly it slowly like slows down for here it goes 180 years and then 780 so it's slowly slowing down i think that that's a very interesting idea though though at the same time it's it's one of those areas where you're not sure whether it is a literal interpretation of it or not or, or it's just like part of the mythological structure because so i think that if we're looking at the genesis we we clearly kind of identified that genesis one is more of a is more of a psychological text than really a, a physical account of science but you're slowly moving through the first few chapters in Genesis and you're slowly seeing this kind of movement from this movement from the literal. So I would like to perhaps dive in or delve in or specify a bit more about, about the ages. Cause I think it's very interesting. It's like, why on earth are these people 900, 800 years old? It seems like a very arbitrary distinction if someone just made it up, but rather at the same time, it seems a bit, seems a bit rare that someone could live indeed 800 900 years old and, and i don't know any of the science behind of it but it does seem pretty weird if someone could possibly live 900 years old so it's one of those things which it doesn't seem exactly made up because it's weird how anyone would make that up though at the same time it does seem that it is a bit weird for it to be literal literally the case as well yeah i i, I think you made a very important point that like no crackhead could, could come up with with someone living 900 years and consistently writes that and like i don't like for 20 people so you can't i don't think you can attribute it to complete stupidity on a part of the bible but there must be there must be something to it that's kind of the point where you some some stories in the bible it sounds so <coughs> so amazing and so so utterly ridiculous that you can't help but think that there's some point to it but because no one no one would be stupid enough to write something like that. I feel like it's, it's the same thing here. And, and also, perhaps, I have to point out that perhaps this genealogy has a, has a very important role in setting up the story, the next story <coughs> of, of, of leaving, leading up to Noah. So it almost feels like it's pointing to an important fact that before Noah, who, who really walked with God, there was this, this long line of lineage uh, behind him that almost I guess provided him with a certain gravity or a certain a certain way of being that he was able to um, I guess take on when 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 horror really stroke him with, with the flood so I think it's, it's almost presenting this long lineage as a way to 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 buffer Noah or I'm wondering what you think about it. I think this idea of a long lineage and the, the importance of the long lineage is very, very interesting because I think that it could perhaps be, as you said, a representation of being, a representation of the culture. I think that it's kind of this idea that the importance of the genealogy is not necessarily the people in the genealogy, but rather the existence of the genealogy is to say that it is your past, it is your upbringing, it's your culture, it's those before you, which have a significant impact of who you are. And it's not, and 
and it's and it's exactly who were in front of you the past which would slowly dictate your your position your being in the world and and it's by understanding both the lineage and the future and yourself in which you can only it's only then which you can live a fulfilled life i think that's a very important yeah. thing and i guess historically <laughs> genealogies have always been extremely important to to lend authority to different people as in I, I, if, if I'm not wrong, most of the kings claimed that they were descendants from certain mythological figures, and that gave them a certain authority mm -hmm. as uh, the king and as, as royals. And similarly, in, in, for, for Chinese, we, we all say that we descended from, I don't know, like Yan and Huang, like these two different people and tribes, and, and it's still a kind of myth that holds people together. So it's, it's almost a sense in which it doesn't really matter whether the genealogy is a correct or not, but only that people have to believe in them or, or find certain meaning in them. For example, <laughs> in, at least in, in the genealogy that my family compiled, we found that one of the greatest poets inside uh, in, in Chinese history, Du Fu, was, <laughs> was one of my ancestors, but I don't know, like 20, 30 generations away. But it, it still imparts a kind of pride onto me even though, even though I know I, I probably didn't get any of his genes. So. I think that's a very interesting idea. And I definitely agree with you on this because I think that it is indeed the, the existence, the lineage, as you say, it doesn't need to be accurate in order for it to have significance and for it to have significance on your life. I think the same thing goes with names to some degree, greater or lesser extent. It's like, it's like your, your name symbolizes a lot more than just, oh, it's just a label for who you are. It's like the name also itself has a story and that story is something to tell. And that's similar to the Notre Dame essay in which you have to write for unis. It's like, what does your name tell about you? And that's a very interesting thing. And I think the same goes with your culture, your lineage. It's like, yeah. it's like your, your past is that which I wouldn't say defines you because I think that you, you fully have to define yourself. But also it is that which helps structure you. It's the structure upon which you live in the similar way that we live in a society. We're not just random individuals who could do whatever we want. We are constrained by our society. And in the same way, we are constrained in the same way by our culture. And I think that that is a very interesting uh, way to look at things. Though so I find a very, there's a very interesting uh, a, a thing in Lacanian psychoanalysis where he said that uh, we're, we're always born into, into a network of symbolic associations and it, it in, in some sense we're determined before uh, we're, our being is already determined before we're even born in people's expectations of ourselves and also the names that, that, that they decide to impart onto onto us but unfortunately my parents didn't think about my names at all and then they realized only after i was born <laughs> you had, they had to come up with a name in like four hours. <laughs> so, so I ended up with a terrible Chinese name. <laughs> and my English name just came from Warren Buffett. So it's not very profound either. <laughs> but I, I also feel like in our culture, there's names that really impart great expectations. For example, I don't know, Joseph, Job, uh, Joshua. But a lot of the times we don't really think about where, where these names came from and what exactly they mean. For example, I don't know, like Helen, Elena means light and etc. These are all very beautiful names, but we don't think about it. And I think Anna means light also. And there's also another discussion. <coughs> he said that names are rigid 
rigid designators. <laughs> so a, a name is special compared to any other word or any other grammatical form in that <laughs> a name designates a thing in every possible world. And it is anti-descriptivist in a sense that so long I, Joshua in every single possible world will be Joshua, even though no, none of the facts about Joshua stays, stays the same. So I find that there is some very important status that, that can be imparted to the names that, that is very interesting to, to investigate. I definitely agree with you on this one. I think that there's almost some sense of, there's almost, and I think, I think this is why the Greeks always believed that names had power and it's something that went through the ages. And it's, and it's very interesting because I, you, you don't think much about the personalities of Joshua or whatever those names are, but you seem to emulate to some degree, even subconsciously, the attributes of the person, no matter how little you care about the stories. And perhaps Warren Drew might soon become a actual the next billionaire in the world or something along those lines. And perhaps that's why I'm his friend right now, in, in, in sight of the future potential. But, 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 I mean, there is some sense that names have power, and I'm not exactly sure why is the case, but there's something something about you knowing the story within you and 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 illustrating it in your life they would be quite interesting to see someone who's named something or and they and they aren't told the story of the name whether they would the name would still have the same power either consciously or subconsciously yeah and it's, it's also the same thing with with uh names that we impart to ideologies like democracy or communism or capitalism right like that 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 name seems to be this focus that makes something into a democracy, as in there are so many different types of democracies. Even dictatorships call themselves democracies. So it seems like what unites all the democracies is exactly this one name. And perhaps you can even say that what unites a single person is just this name, not what actually the person does. And it is this name that imparts a certain essence onto the person, at least in our symbolic framework. And I also find it very interesting that it, it seems to us, it is very easy for us to, to hear our names, like uh, accidentally, as in we're, we're always in the lookout for, for our name, to, for the enunciation of our names in everyday life. So a lot of the times, I would think that people call, have, have called Warren when actually no one said such a thing. And I'm sure that you've experienced that also. But I think we could perhaps go back to our discussion on, um, on ages, because ages is very interesting, because we do agree that it is a bit extreme. It's, it's extreme in this case that it can't be, it can't be purposely made up or purposely, it's not something which they clearly think is false in some degree because you really wouldn't make it up. And, and perhaps you can suggest that either they thought it was real, which I highly doubt is the case, or they thought it had some, or that these genealogies or these characters, you know, when they say it's Methuselah, when they say it's, um, when they say it's, uh, who is it? Methuselah. If they say Lamech, or they say, or they say Enoch, or they say Jared, or Canaan, all these people actually had more significant stories to them, which were lost in time. For example, perhaps how the Greeks looked towards Hercules was a similar way the the, the writers of the Bible looked towards um, Canaan or Jared. They just lost those stories or the significance of those stories. And as a result, no longer we're able to, we don't understand the context of why they were so old. And that's a possibility it's, as well. It's almost like the, the story is gone, but the name still remained. Like when you flip through an actual genealogy of perhaps a family, you see all of these names piled on top of you. And 
but but you have no stories attached to them. So there's almost a certain melancholy or, or sadness that comes with it. Like you, uh, one day you will be you'll be that name on on the piece of paper, but then there will be no story connected with the name. All all the richness that you now feel right now, and perhaps it's the same with with all these certainly very important figures. Well, they they won't be presented on in in Genesis so early on. Mm -hmm. I think that this perfectly ties into the idea of Enoch, because Enoch himself, there is something called, and I'm not sure why just now that your face has completely disappeared from the screen. However, you can see here, and this is why I was leaving Enoch to the wild, it's like, and all these days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So it's a very interesting thing about this Enoch character, you know, it's like, it's like, well, everyone else died, but Enoch seems to be a very special dude because he didn't actually die. God just took him. And, and it seems very interesting. It suggests that there actually is something beyond the, there's something beyond the, perhaps beyond these, these char characters, that there are actually stories behind it. Because, because if you look at it here, well, what exactly does it mean when you don't, when you, when, when God took him? Why is that sp special? It, there surely has to be something behind it. And this is actually similar to the idea of the Book of Enoch, which is actually, which was actually part of uh, the Old Testament. It's one of those apocryphal texts which they've decided not to add into the Bible. But but it's one of those very interesting things. It's like, well, there are actually stories behind these names, just that we don't really know what these stories are. That might be something we could think about. Yeah, and I find the expression "walking with God" extremely interesting. I'm, I'm wondering what, what you think about it. Mm -hmm. A walking with God definitely is a very curious thing. So we see that Adam and Eve walked with God in Eden, and that's some sense of they're a very holy person or they're a very good person. That could be walk with God. Or it's someone who understand, understands being, because if you look at it more from more tillage kind of perspective, it says, well, God is being itself and, and kind of understanding being would be the, or experiencing and, and really fulfilling it would be your, would be the ultimate union with the being. And, and perhaps that would be some Tillichian kind of approach to, to Enoch or, or something like that. But, but I think that there's something along those lines where walking with God is kind of like an, a demonstration of your goodness or your, or your kind of your relationship with him. Yeah, and, and walk is something very intimate. I, I, it, it almost brings to me the picture like you, you're sort of strolling with one of your friends and having having a ch chat about about just random stuff inside your life, and it, it's the same thing here. Walking with God, that the God is a very very personal being in in here. Although, I think there's a very famous interpretation of how like in the Old Testament, the God starts off being very personal, and then uh, it slowly becomes more and more impersonal and impersonal until it just becomes this voice in the sky. I think that's a very interesting idea, and perhaps the reason for this kind of impersonality is also a relationship of humans, humans being less close to God, or humans being less, less holy, and to some degree, perhaps. And that might be one of the reasons why we see... Um, why there are more people walking with God in the Old Testament towards, and then after that, there is less connection with God because people have forsaken him to some degree. Mm. And, and I think that this is a very interesting place, and we can perhaps turn over to the first part of the next chapter, which I think is greatly, um, greatly connected to this. And we'll talk more about, we'll talk more about Noah, Genesis 6 and 7 in a later uh, discussion, but, but I think that, this uh, discussion here is greatly related to 
or at least the first part of Genesis 6, is greatly related to the idea that we've been discussing. It says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And that, that's very interesting, I think, these, these passages. And I'm, and I'm not exactly sure what fully I, we should take of them, but it, there definitely is some profundity to, to these texts. First of all, being that now the age of earth has gone to 120 years instead of the 900 years in the last chapter. And there doesn't seem to be any particular reason for why the age suddenly changes it's there's also a, a kind of as the, the christian eschatology so it sort of uh, comes out here of like there's a there's general decline until perhaps the the new testament and then we we have a certain uh way 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 towards salvation and it also seems quite greek to me in the sense that there's always the idea of the golden age but it also seems to me that Every single age feels like the, the previous age is a golden age. So every single age believes that they, they themselves are in decline. But it's almost on every single one of the person to, 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 to reverse this decline of the age. Because thinking about it, if you use, use an analogy from physics, uh, entropy is inevitable, right? Like things tend towards disorder and, and chaos if you don't. If, if human beings don't tend towards them, but it is this it is this job of the human being to tend towards being that that enables that stops the decline of each age. That's why I think Heidegger called human beings shepherds of being a very Christian kind of uh, image here, like being a shepherd that guides being that protects being, but does not enforce onto being anything. I think that's a very interesting idea. And Perhaps this idea of the decline is very insightful, perhaps not only as a scientific decline, but also a moral decline in some, in some states. And perhaps the age of humans are a reflection of, or an analogy for the decline of, the decline of humans' age. For example, for example, death and sin has always been deeply tied together in, in Christian theology in the same way that the more sinful people get, the death, the death comes quicker in some degree. And perhaps that's why the death is more prominent um, in between in between the sons of man in the past and then the sons of man. Now it's like the age well, is also decreasing in this sense. Or can you even read it as in the sense that if you live a moral life, it doesn't matter the, the, the time in, in the physical sense of how many years of how many times the, the earth goes around the sun matters less. And, mm -hmm. and there's another form of time of the kind of existential time of moral fulfillment or striving towards God and striving to walk with God. And in, in, in this striving, uh, you, you live much longer, even though the earth rotates around the sun in, in, in similar revolutions inside your life. But perhaps one can read it like this. I think that's definitely a very interesting idea. And... And it's definitely something that we can build upon. And I think it's so true. It's in the sense that if you're living a fulfilled life, if you're, if you're acting in a good way, 
what naturally comes to be is that you you're more fulfilled with your life and the the length of time doesn't mean too much for example a lot of people these days more than in the past are always very caught up about oh i don't want to die i'm very afraid i'll die tomorrow or something like that it's because they don't live fulfilled lives but if you live a fulfilled life in an existential sense the time you die is no longer worried a worry to you because you've completed everything you've lived your life to the fullest and what happens then is that well you live today you die tomorrow you you've still lived fulfilled and you're you're happy with yourself you you've understood being and you've understood kind of where you are in the world and you don't it doesn't and then everything else loses its meaning to some degree and i think that's definitely a very beautiful and interesting uh interesting what do you call it interesting uh insight into it yeah i i also here we we can focus on the key passage in genesis 6 and the lord said my spirit shall not always strive with man but that he also is flesh yet his days shall be 120 years first i'm not very sure what's the logical connection between the first part of the sentence and then the second part that yet his days shall be 120 years i'm wondering whether whether you can you have any idea about it josh my friend i do not have any idea about this either though i do think that there's this idea however perhaps that and this is why i like this tillich idea is that like well being with god is similar to to living a longer time but when you separate yourself from the divine when you've separated you've aborted yourself from from the divine within you you're slowly harming yourself and as a result it's kind of the idea that your days will be shorter and significantly shorter than in the last chapter in the last chapter is like 800 years 900 years now it's only 100 years it's like well man has separated themselves from god as a result there is this great chasm which leads to the death and that might be the best way to read it. Mm-hmm. and it also reminds me of how for for christians the this is for 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 christians and also for jews there's also an increased emphasis on flesh or on on a body that perhaps you don't see in a lot of other major religions uh, of the world and it also it almost makes me think that nietzsche was actually fundamentally a christian in his affirmation of the of appearance and of the body in a sense that this this is already latent in christianity and and in 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 Judaism and and nature was pushing this to the extreme mm-hmm. of this complete affirmation of the flesh and of the world right now i think that's a very interesting idea and but i think that is where the christian and the nietzschean disagree they're both pointing towards the same phenomena man moving towards the affirmation of the flesh the affirmation of the world as it is right now the only question then is is that affirmation of the flesh a good thing or not and that i think is a disagreement between nietzsche and christianity is that well while christianity looks at the flesh and doesn't say it is evil perhaps it says that the flesh has the potential of evil and it has a corrupting element to it kind of like you look at you look at something which is greatly beautiful it's greatly attractive but it's also greatly devil it has a great sense of evil to it as or at least not evil but a potential of evil within it and i think that there's a similar dynamic in christianity between the two kind of ideas mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just bring in another translation. I think it's the NIV version. It says, mm-hmm. Then the Lord said, "My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal." And and it also on the footnote says, "Mortal can also mean corrupt." So it, when when we hear say that, uh, let me see, 
for that he also is flesh. This flesh can also mean a, a certain corruption and a certain mm-hmm. mortality that is associated with mm-hmm. it. I think, that flesh, pro- it. I think this. I think this translation perhaps perhaps had a bit of a reference to the Greek Platonic idea of the the flesh being evil, the spirit being good, and and that and that definitely that gap of the Platonic influence uh, contra the bit of a more of an Aristotelian view about uh, being is is perhaps quite interesting how it interpreted or it, it changed the understanding of Christianity through the ages. Mm-hmm. And because it, it, it rests uncomfortable with me that the flesh is corrupt or <laughs> be, because for me, at, at least in, in Christian theology, when, when everyone's resurrected, the body, the body has to come, come up along with <laughs> the soul. So what do you think about the corruption of the flesh? Do you think the flesh is corrupt or? Well, I think is, as I've said before previously, it's, it's, it's less so the flesh is intrinsically corrupt, but it is the flesh which provides methods of corruption. It's kind of like a tool which can be either used for good or for evil. And that is kind of the corruption of the flesh, less so in the Greek idea, but more so in the idea that uh, the flesh is something which is beautiful. It's something which is good. But, but like in Garden of Eden, where there's good, there also has to be potential for evil. And that's perhaps the best idea of the body, of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Or it, there's a certain burden that's imparted on human beings by being embodied inside the flesh. Because when, once you're embodied inside the flesh, you're able to act into the world and able to create effects. And this, this is a great responsibility, more than perhaps a kind of pure thinking being. Who, who can think all, all they want, but won't be able to affect other people in action. We, we are this soul being who, who can act with, with the flesh. And this brings mortality and a certain potentiality for corruption that comes with it. I think that's definitely a very interesting idea. And, and perhaps there's a good place where we could end off this discussion because later on in the, the second part of Noah, we do definitely do see an idea where where, where people actually go horribly wrong to a great degree. And that's perhaps something which we can check out in the next discussion we have. So if you enjoyed this discussion, make sure to like and subscribe. Stay safe. If you want to uh, watch more of our content, check it out on Bostoyevsky and us or Thinker's Kitchen, where you can find our podcasts. Stay safe. See you soon. God bless and goodbye, my friends. Thanks for watching. And I'll see you in the next one.